From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As nearly 200 nations gathered in Poland to work out rules for the Paris Climate Agreement, countries were urged to stop stalling and move forward while there is still time. Act now with courage and resolve, or God forbid, ignore the defeatable evidence and become the generation that betrayed humanity and our responsibility to future generations. And while the Trump administration drags its heels, polls show the vast majority of Americans believe climate change is real. We really saw a huge jump in the last three years in the number of people who believe in climate change, and that was bipartisan. However, there's still a huge disconnect between the seriousness of the problem and the need to take action, which most of the respondents think doesn't have to happen for 10 or 15 years. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Delegates from nearly 200 nations recently gathered in Katowice, Poland, to move forward the Paris Climate Agreement. And as the session opened, Fiji Prime Minister Frank Bonamarama cited the warming from IPCC scientists that without rapid action, the Earth's temperature will increase more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, with even more dire consequences the warmer it gets. As the scientists have just told us, the window of opportunity to act is closing very fast. Time is running out and we must move quickly to have any hope of capping global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial age. Act now with courage and resolve or God forbid, ignore the defeatable evidence and become the generation that betrayed humanity and our responsibility to future generations. As we go to air, it was unclear how and when countries will account for meeting the individual goals they set for themselves back in 2015, and we will update the final results of the COP24 meeting on our website, loe.org. But at the moment, of more than 190 countries, only two nations report they are on target to meet their share of the Paris climate goals. Alden Meyer of the Union of Concerned Scientists is in Poland and joins us now. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Alden. Good to be with you again, Steve. How would you characterize the mood of this conference of the parties compared to ones you've attended in the past? Well, it's, it's workmanlike. They're trying to get the rules to implement the Paris Agreement, everything from what kind of information countries have to put forward when they submit their national pledges under the Paris Agreement, how you track and report on how well you're doing on those, what kind of market mechanisms they should set up to let countries cooperate, tricky areas like land use, forestry and agriculture, just a whole series of of issues they have to address, really setting up the, the guts of the Paris Agreement and how it's going to operate going forwards. So when countries showed up at Katowice, how were they doing in terms of meeting the targets that they had set themselves individually three years ago after Paris? Well, the, the latest analysis by the United Nations Environment Program that was re- released just last month says that basically we're only about a third of the way to the reductions between business as usual levels and where we need to be in 2030 to have a chance of staying under two degrees, which is the less ambitious of the temperature goals set in Paris. It it said we should shoot to stay well below two degrees Celsius and aim for 1.5 degrees. Just for comparison, we were now at about one degree Celsius increase over pre-industrial 
temperature uh, limits. So we have a lot more work to do. So with the United States pullback from the climate negotiation process, how was our delegation on folks associated with the, the Trump administration, how were they treated there in Katowice? Well, they haven't pulled back entirely. They're still a party to the Paris Agreement until they're actually able to formally pull out one day after the 2020 presidential election, as it turns out. So they're still participating actively in the uh, rulebook negotiations. Of course, they have pulled back on climate finance, cutting $2 billion out of the $3 billion pledge to the Green Climate Fund that President Obama put forward. And, of course, everyone is aware that President Trump and his team are actively seeking to dismantle virtually every aspect of uh, domestic climate action. And so I think the negotiators are negotiating with one hand tied behind their back because they're not seen uh, as leaders on climate ambition and climate finance the way they were during the Obama years. And yet there's this sense that everyone wants to maintain the ability for the United States to come back in to Paris after President Trump leaves office. And that's what gives the the negotiating team here for the U.S. a little bit of leverage is that people are hopeful that the U.S. will eventually come back into Paris if President Trump does indeed pull us out just before uh, his first term ends. Katowice, Poland is at the heart of Poland's coal country. And the United States made a presentation during this conference on the U.S. view of coal, that we need to use more of it, and it's really important. How was that received? Well, this is sort of a repeat of what they did last year at the Conference of the Parties in, in Bonn, Germany. They, they hosted a side event with a number of panelists addressing coal as well as advanced nuclear. And their argument was that uh, the world is using fossil fuels, and so we ought to deploy slightly cleaner coal technology that doesn't use quite as much coal per unit of electricity, and that would be better for the planet. But as the IPCC report made crystal clear, if you want to get anywhere near the temperature goals that countries agreed to three years ago in Paris, you have to virtually phase out use of coal by mid-century. Unless you can develop carbon capture and storage technology and make that economic. So it it was kind of viewed as a a bit of a sideshow, a distraction. Uh, One delegate told me it was like a tobacco company uh, setting up a booth and handing out free cigarettes at a cancer doctor's convention. Uh, So it didn't go over too well with a number of countries. It was protested by global youth from around the world uh, who occupied the uh, space at the beginning, uh, did a protest, and, and then walked out about 15 minutes into the event. What still needs to be decided at this COP? Well, they, they have to make the final decisions on just about everything. They have been discussing the individual elements of the Paris rule book, but they have yet to bring those together at the ministerial level into an overall political package so that countries can decide if there's enough in that there for them. They have to decide what to put in the final decision in terms of the IPCC report, how to characterize that, what expectations there are on countries to take action uh, by 2020 to revise their uh, their existing commitments under Paris. Basically, a lot of it is is wide open. There's a few small things on adaptation and, and technology where they've reached a consensus and, and not too much heavy lifting there. But on the major issues, they really haven't yet made the political compromises they're going to be needed to, to reach a final agreement. Those are going to have to happen in the coming days. 
Shortly before this meeting began, it was understood that Brazil would host the next one, but I gather they've backed out. Why and what does that mean for the process? Well, they, they said they backed out because of the financial cost. Uh, hosting one of these Conference of the Parties can cost 80 to $100 million for the host country, and they said it was a fiscal measure. But people suspect it may have been related to the incoming president who takes office in January, President Bolsonaro, who is much more a climate skeptic about the science and has said that he wants to cut back on enforcement of laws and, and policies designed to reduce deforestation in the Amazon. So there's a bit of a sense that the real reason for this is that Brazil uh, wasn't interested in being such a climate champion as they might have been in, in past years. The Latin American region is now discussing uh, which country uh, will get the bid to host the conference next year. It looks like the front runners at this point are Chile and Costa Rica, and they will have to make a decision on this by the end of this meeting so it can be formally accepted by the full conference of the parties. So, Alden, you've been going to these for a long time. First conference of the parties, 1995 in Berlin. Original deal back in 1992, set up in Rio de Janeiro. How are you feeling about the process now? Well, I'm feeling good about the action that the Paris Agreement has spurred around the world. If you look at the cities, the businesses, the states and provinces, a number of countries that are making pretty transformational commitments, whether it's to get 100% of their electricity from renewable energy or trying to get to net zero emissions. But the reality is that we haven't done enough. Emission trends continue to go upwards. The problem, as you well know, Steve, is that we're running out of time. Uh, we don't have a lot more time and, and uh, we're not keeping up with the physics in the atmosphere and, and the problem is mounting. So it's a bit of a yin and yang, I guess you'd say. Uh, there's some indications of hope and, and progress and, and some areas that are raising concern. And on, on balance, we're clearly not doing enough. Alden Myers, Director of Strategy and Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Alden. It's always a pleasure. Great, Steve. I enjoyed being with you. Well, it's time to check in with Peter Dykstra now for a look beyond the headlines. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. On the line now from Atlanta, I believe. Peter, are you there? I am. How you doing, Steve? Good. What do you got for us today? Well, we're talking about an old, old idea that may help our current big, big problem of climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. Uh, ships at sea are a huge, huge contributor to greenhouse gas. And um, engineers and startup companies are looking at sales on even our biggest cargo ships. Wow, that would be amazing because I think I saw a statistic go by the other day that says all those ships out there would be number eight country in the world for global warming emissions. So what's the plan? Well, there are a couple different designs. None of them have gone into the uh, actual use phase. One of the ideas that's uh, popular, not really sails per se, but these cylindrical turbines arrayed up and down the deck that suck in wind and cut down on the use of uh, bunker oil and the heavy fuel that powers big ships. Another one involves solar panels on masts put on the deck. There's a third design that uses uh, the 21st century version of actual sails. A couple of quick numbers. Uh, they're looking at immense potential cuts 
in fuel costs, maybe as uh, as much as half of the current fuel costs. Fuel on a typical cargo ship can be $50,000 a day or more, and by that I mean a lot more. Oh, my. Well, hey, we've been using sails as a civilization since, what, last couple of thousand or more years? Maybe this will work. What else do you have for us today? Some news from GM. There was, of course, the announcement earlier in the month that they were going to close five factories and lay off about 15,000 people. One of the factories they're closing down is in Hamtramck, Michigan, outside Detroit. That's where they make the Chevy Volt. And when that factory shuts, the Chevy Volt goes away. Why are they doing this? Does it have to do with the uh, $7,500 tax credit disappearing, do you think? Uh, That's a possibility. Right now, there's a federal tax credit of up to $7,500, but there's a catch. Once a specific model reaches 200,000 cars sold, that tax credit goes away. Tesla's already there. They've sold over 200,000. The Chevy Volt could reach that limit before it uh, ends production in the month of March. Hmm. You know, I guess people wouldn't be interested in paying another $7,500 for the same car at this point. Right. Hey, what do you have from the History Vaults for us? 50th anniversary. This is actually a bit later in the month, just before Christmas, but it's a really cool anniversary. In December 1968, Apollo 8, one of the precursor space missions to Apollo 11 that landed men on the moon. But on Apollo 8, there were three astronauts, Frank Borman, James Lovell, And Bill Anders. Anders took a photograph that endures as one of the most famous photographs ever of an Earthrise, something that human beings had never seen before. Peter, how did you feel when you first saw that photograph? I thought it was pretty cool. And for some reason, I was expecting the Earth to be a different color, even though it's predominantly ocean. But um, it was just a beautiful picture from space. It led to a, a lot of speculation about all of the things we can learn about Earth, about living on Earth, from space. And when I saw that, I had a couple of reactions. First thing, I, I, I choked up because it just was so astonishing. And then I thought about the people who'd gotten us this photograph and how huge the void is because the Earth in that picture is so tiny compared to the vastness of space and how they had to have everything work right in order for them to get back home safely. And they had computing power on board that was less than we carry in our pockets on an iPhone. Indeed. Hey, Peter, uh, we're heading into the holidays, so it'll be a little while before we talk to you again. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Happy holidays, Peter. Yeah, happy holidays to you and the staff and all the listeners. Thanks a lot, Steve. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. One point five to stay alive. Caribbean people are survivors on the line. We can't afford to waste time. Just one point five to stay alive. We should be the morning. Morning. Then we come together. 
1.5 to stay alive is a rallying cry for island nations at the U.N. climate talks. In 2015, island states pushed for the Paris Climate Agreement to focus on keeping the Earth's temperature from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius, as even a bit more warming will flood low-lying island nations. And scientific evidence shows that a world that becomes even 2 degrees warmer is far more disastrous for civilization than a world that warms by 1.5 degrees or less. Let's check in now with Yvonne Deng, a member of the independent group Climate Action Tracker, to see which countries are meeting their share of the one-and-a-half-degree goal. She joins us from COP24 in Katowice, Poland, and notes that the tracker ratings take into account the unique situations of each country. When you look at the overall emission reductions that we need to see globally, it doesn't mean that every country has to reduce their emissions, right? There are countries that are still developing they need to be allowed to increase their emissions still from current levels. And there are countries that have already developed and they really need to look at decreasing emissions. And there are various different, actually, schools of thought or approaches to how you share this sort of global emission reduction across different countries. You could think of an approach um, where you say, well, we should all get to a certain per capita emissions level by a certain date and sort of draw a line between now and then. Or you can think of approaches that account for the fact that some countries have, of course, historically emitted a lot of emissions to further their development. And you could think of approaches which say, well, the wealthy nations should do more. And at the Climate Action Tracker, we don't take a pick. We actually use all of the approaches out there. And we look at the whole range of possible emission levels per country in any of these approaches. And then we determine what we call the fair share range of emission reductions, and that informs our rating scale. So which countries are really not doing a whole heck of a lot to meet their commitments under Paris? So the majority of our countries are not quite there yet, but we certainly have a group of countries that we rate critically insufficient or highly insufficient. These include countries like Russia and Ukraine, Saudi Arabia, uh, Turkey. The U.S. is obviously one, and this is at federal level. We need to be very clear that in the U.S. there's a lot happening at state and local level. But at the federal level, of course, we have a lack of action and rather a reversal of direction. Really, all countries could do more to reduce emissions. So now with the U.S. taking a step back, you see China really in the leadership, both in the negotiation process and in terms of infrastructure. How does your analysis rate China's progress on, on meeting the Paris targets? The Climate Action Tracker currently rates the Chinese target under Paris as highly insufficient. It's not strong enough, unfortunately, so they can step up ambition. But the good thing with China is that when they set themselves a the target, they also tend to achieve it. China is doing a lot on the ground. They published their 13th five-year plan, which has seen a cap on coal and primary energy. It's seen a cap on energy demand, and it's got capacity targets for non-fossil power. And they're also doing a lot in rollout of electric vehicles. So China is certainly doing a lot and can do more also in terms of coal, which I believe has taken a slightly larger share again in recent years. But I think uh, they can be a leader if they step up uh, and address the coal issue. What about India? How well is that doing? I'm glad you mentioned India. In the group of the big economies that we track, India is really a shining light. They have set themselves a target that we already rate as being two degree compatible. If they increase that ambition, they could become the first large economy to be one and a half degree compatible. And they have also put policies in place to really scale up their renewables. And they are thinking about policies on electric transport and others. 
But India also still is relying a lot on coal. They're also still thinking of expanding coal, and that's something they will have to address. By the way, if you go to your website, you see something called the CAT, the CAT thermometer. What is that? What does it do? So in addition to rating each of the country's commitments under Paris, we also look at these emissions levels they've committed to, and we roll them all up to global level. And then we say, well, what does it mean in terms of the warming we expect by the end of the century? If countries did what they've committed to under Paris, how much warming would we see? And currently we're seeing around three degrees or so warming by the end of the century with what countries have committed to. We also look at what the warming would be if countries carried on as they're currently planning. So our warming projections for the current policy trajectory are slightly above three degrees. But the good news is that we have almost all the technologies available that we need for this. Some things we have to figure out, but the vast majority we have. And the challenge really is in getting them out there and getting them scaled up. So this is a political problem. It's a question of willingness to do it. It's not a question of figuring out how to do it technically. That would be even scarier, but we know how to do it. Yvonne Deng is an associate director at Ecofis, a Navigant company, which is part of the Climate Action Tracker. Yvonne, thanks for taking the time with us today. Thanks for having me. The Climate Action Tracker rates just two countries as compatible with the Paris Agreement target to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, the Gambia and Morocco. The Gambia just embarked on a six-year, $25 million project to plant trees and restore degraded lands. And Morocco is already close to 40% renewable energy, and in a decade, more than half will be renewable. The country's former environment minister, Hakima El Haiti, says Morocco has been on a path to a low-carbon economy for decades. Since 1964, we had understood in Morocco that we are affected by climate change. And that time, our dead king decided to create dams in Morocco, big dams to store water because he wanted to ensure the drinking water to the people of Morocco and to ensure the food security for the Moroccans. So we began our fight against climate change many, many, many decades ago. And then our king, Mohammed VI, decided to cut the subsidies on fossil fuel. And now Morocco is choosing green technologies in its investment. So since Morocco is now doing its part to meet the target of keeping things below one and a half degrees centigrade, how does your country feel about the lack of ambition that we see on climate change from the United States and, and many other countries at this point? we will be very frank. When you see that Americans redraw from the Paris Agreement, I'm not only disappointed, I'm feeling that politicians are not taking their responsibilities. United States was a leading country during the negotiation. And now, as the President Trump decided to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, they are still blocking the negotiation. And this is not correct. Africa, the whole Africa is only 4% of the emissions worldwide. The one who are impacting the world are the ones who are fuel producers and industrial developers. And those countries should lead the negotiation. I'm thinking about the United States, Russia, China, Europe, etc. So I'm 
really feeling as Moroccan, as African, as a citizen of the world, disappointed and feeling that those who are blocking the negotiation now are not taking their responsibilities. And many million and million of people will die because of this decision. So looking down the road, what kinds of climate impacts could affect Morocco in the years to come? Oh, we are already affected. <laughs> Drought, desertification, uh, migration. In Africa, I will tell you, 500 million hectares are degraded because of climate change. Million and million of people are migrating and dying in the Mediterranean Sea because of climate change. And those are not things we are reading in reports, you know. Those are things we are living already. Akima El Haiti served as Morocco's environment minister from 2013 to 2017, and she's now president of Liberal International. Minister uh, El Haiti, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you. A majority of Republicans have now joined a majority of Democrats and independents to say they are concerned about climate change, according to the Monmouth University Polling Institute. More than 800 U.S. adults were polled amid the news of the California wildfires. But while nearly 80 percent of those surveyed say they believe in climate change, only about a third feel immediate action is needed to meet the growing climate crisis. Tony McDonald is the director of Monmouth University's Urban Coast Institute, and he joins us now. Thank you very much for inviting me. So what's the major takeaway of this study? I think the one is that we really saw a huge jump in the last three years in the number of people who believe in climate change, and that was bipartisan. There was over a 15% increase in the number of Republicans from 49 to 64%. So Overall, 78% believe in climate change, and increasingly we are seeing that this is not, as often reported, just a Republican or Democratic issue. There is a tilt, though, that remains that independents are more likely than Republicans to believe in climate change, and Democrats even more so. But still, a majority of people, you say. Yeah, I think the tilt starts to come out and be a little bit pronounced when you think about how serious it is. So again, we are seeing some increases in the amount of people who think that it is a serious problem. So again, 54% think it's a very serious problem, up from 41% three years ago. But you do see that essentially the Democrats, 82% thinks it's very serious, where only 25% of the Republicans do. So I think where you start to see the breakdown is that um, the need to take action right now, how serious it is, and that is still a fairly big gap. And what about this notion of, quote, believing in climate change? Because, you know, a number of folks out there say, well, yeah, there's climate change because the climate always changes on the planet and humans don't have that much to do with it. That's a good observation because our polls showed that actually there was a split on, on what the causes were. So 37% of plurality still believe that it is essentially human and environmental caused. And so they don't single out the human contribution to it. And only 29% believe that it's primarily caused by humans. So again, there's still a lot of disconnect that I think obviously leads to a 
a concern that if you don't believe that humans are the problem, then you might not necessarily think that action is needed to change human behavior. So I do think it starts to split apart again when you look at the need for action and when to take action. So what does your data tell us about the outlook of Americans when it does come to climate change across the board? How worried are they? How optimistic are they, do you think? Well, interestingly enough, there is some optimism that there is still time uh, to take action in general. But what you do have is that 31% think it has to happen in the next two years, but over 46% believe it doesn't happen to happen for 10 or 15 years. So although there's optimism, it might be this sort of hopeful optimism that maybe the problem will go away and it'll be, be something we can deal with another day. Again, I think there's no really broad consensus of a need to take immediate action. There was an interesting finding as well, however, that the majority of uh, Americans did think that government could take more action. So it would be appropriate for the government to take action. But that is kind of undercut by the other finding that says that very few people have any confidence in Congress to take action. Now, studies show that registered voters who rank environmental issues as their number one or number two issue tend to be young, African-American, Latino, live in urban areas. Many of them also make under 50000 a year. What did you see in the demographic breakdowns of your study? We didn't go to that level of detail, Steve, but we did find that, in fact, more young people did think that climate change was a very serious issue, and they saw a need to take action sooner. And they also were, as young people tend to be, a little more optimistic about the ability to respond. So we did sort of verify, I think, your general sense that the younger folks are more interested in it. But it does seem that, you know, Hispanics, Blacks, 74% think that it is a very serious problem. And, but I mean, they might just feel more vulnerable in general to the impacts. I mean, uh, there's many minority communities who are in coastal urban areas and cities that, that might feel more at risk. They might feel also that they have less ability to respond. I mean, you read a lot right now about um, after storms and the ability to rebuild. And if you don't have insurance or aren't self-insured. So again, this is speculation that I think they would probably feel more vulnerable to not only the physical impacts, but also the dislocation of jobs and homes. That could be some of the reason that you see a higher concern in the Hispanic and Black communities. Tony, how, did, how do you feel when you look at these results? How expected were they? I think they were um, not expected in terms of the degree of a shift in the direction of climate being a significant issue and one that needed action. And I think it's a fairly significant uh, shift. We don't see that shift that often. I would say, however, I'm still concerned that maybe the motivations are going to be still political and economic in the end and, and the costs of responding. And there's still some significant disconnect between communities in terms of the need to take action quickly. And so there's still a huge disconnect between the seriousness of the problem, which I think most scientists agree is now, and the need to take action, which still most of the respondents think doesn't have to happen for 10 or 15 years. We recently talked to folks from what's called the Environmental Voter Project, who had surveyed uh, some 20 million registered voters who say they list the environment as their number one or two concern. And in 2014, only a little more than 4 million of those people bothered to show up at the polls. Twice as many showed up at the polls at this last midterm election, closer to 8 million. Given the trends that you see in concerns and these kind of voter polls, where do you think we might be headed in terms of getting more action on dealing with the climate? 
Well, I think um, there's a couple of things. One is I think sometimes in the U.S., I think association with the environment can be perceived as something really that's simply about nature and that aspect of the environment. So I think traditionally environment has ranked low in past years. It's starting to come up again, which we haven't seen in a long time. But I do think environment's been perceived as protecting nature. I think the climate issue is just such a more complex one that it really is about protecting societies and social fabric. So I do think you see political movements and, and politicians that are making connections between the environment and everything from social justice to religion to social elements to responsible business. I do think it's a very positive thing. And I think you really are starting to see a real kind of a recipe for change. Which of your results concern you, Tony? I do think the lack of sense of immediacy is the thing that concerns me most. So they may be long-term problems and they may be investment over a long period of time. But if we don't start now, I do think we may get behind the eight ball in significant ways. So I would say my most significant concern is the lack of immediacy. We've pretty much known about this climate disruption for a quarter century now. We've had a United Nations treaty to deal with it. Every year there are reports that saying it's getting worse and worse. And yet we seem to think it's something that we can deal with in the future, the majority of us do. Yeah, and I have seen how, particularly in the international fora, it takes a long time to reach a consensus. Although the U.S. is backing off from Paris, it was a long time to reach the kind of consensus about the need for dramatic action. So I do think those um, legal processes can move slow. But I, I think that the real conflict here is that it is a long-term problem. So the real effects aren't going to be felt for a long time. We can defend for a while. We can live the way we currently do for a while. There will be a lot of casualties along the way. But again, the reality is we're building a wall that's going to collapse eventually. So I think it's the disconnect between the length of the commitment it's going to take to solve this problem and the need for immediate action. So I think people are as afraid about, you know, our lives are going to change. And we, we're much more um, able to do that after something significant happens. You know, we all don't worry about our health until something goes wrong, and then we might radically change the way we perceive ourselves. And so I do think that's just an unfortunate reality, that this is a complex and long-term problem that does defy short-term quick fixes. Tony McDonald is the director of Monmouth University's Urban Coast Institute. Thanks for taking the time with us today. Thank you. It was good talking with you. Coming up, a scientific creation story for the Earth and our nearest neighbor, the Moon. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The tremendous force of a collision in space can create as well as destroy planets. And in an attempt to understand how the Earth and our nearest neighbor, the Moon, were created, scientists, including Sarah Stewart, use the next best thing to planetary collisions, a gun. Sarah Stewart is a planetary scientist at the University of California, Davis, and a recipient of one of this year's MacArthur Fellowships. Sarah Stewart, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. Putting the cards on the table, Sarah, there are not a lot of women who are scientists, senior scientists these days, not a lot of astrophysicists. What got you into science? 
As a child, I read a lot of science fiction. I watched Star Trek with my father, and it seemed real, right? It, it wasn't something that was impossible to conceive that I could do these things too. And I had a fantastic high school physics teacher who really got me hooked. And I credit him, Eric Curry, at O'Fallon Township High School for really nurturing my interest in science. So I went to college thinking I would be a physicist. And so I think that alone is unusual in that there is nothing around me that said this was an odd thing that I wanted to do. So who was your favorite character on Star Trek? Oh, well, of course, Spock. <laughs> because, um, you know, there's something attractive about analysis, about breaking things down and, and trying to figure out how it works. And even though he had other extreme personality traits, that process was very interesting. So the MacArthur people uh, became fascinated with you in no small measure because you've been looking at the question of this thing we call the moon, you know, how did we get it and how is it related to us? What about this area of study drives you? I think there's an inherent curiosity to where we came from and how the Earth came to be the planet that's so different from our neighbors. And even though that's a general question that people are interested in, what we have today are comparisons. We have exoplanets that tell us that our system is not the most common in the universe and that Earths are not common in the universe. And so I basically have been trying to figure out why. What is it about the way the Earth grew that was different? And our nearest neighbor, our partner in space, the Moon, is a key part of that story because it set the ending of Earth's growth and the beginning of our climate in ways that did not occur on the planets next to us. So what got you first interested in this question of where the heck did the moon come from? So in trying to understand the general problem of planet formation, I learned that collisions were a key part of the process. And I didn't know that I was going to do that as part of planet formation. I thought I was going to be an astronomer. But when I went to graduate school, there was a professor, Tom Ahrens, who had a gun lab, literally cannons in the basement of the building, and he could do these impact experiments that mimicked planet formation. And I did a first-year project with him, and I was hooked. So there you are, you're in the airplane, and the um, person next to you says, so what do you do? What's your 30-second speech to them about what it is that you do and what you've discovered? I study how planets form and evolve. I combine lab experiments that recreate planetary collisions with computer models to answer questions that we see in the solar system. And what have you discovered so far? What we've learned is that a giant impact transforms the Earth into a new planetary object. And we call it a new object because it's no longer a planet. It's not a planet with a disk orbiting around it, like the rings of Saturn. We make an object that we named a synestia. A synestia is a vaporized planet spinning rapidly that looks kind of like a giant space donut. And within that vapor of the synestia, we propose that the moon grows. And because the moon is growing inside the vaporized rock of the Earth, 
the moon inherits the chemical signature of the Earth. And that explains the unusual similarity between the Earth and the moon. So our mantle, which in some respects is kind of like a coat or something, or coating around this core, and the moon itself, made of the same cloth, if you would say. Absolutely. And, and it all came out of this swirling sort of donut thing from this synestia form that you call it. And that's how we're, we're related. How the heck did you figure that out? We run computer models, but there's a human step of needing to interpret what comes out of these models. And it turns out that scientists have probably been making synestias in their computers for a long time before realizing what they had. And that's partly because we make assumptions when we analyze the data. And one day, my student, Simon Locke, and I were sitting in front of the computer making plots that we had never made before, meaning rather than making assumptions, we just said, what does it look like raw? And what does that mean for what comes next? And we convinced ourselves that what we had been assuming about what comes next was absolutely wrong and that we had something completely different. And so that was our big moment. Now, how does this differ from the other hypotheses out there about how the moon was formed? So the giant impact model rose out of the Apollo mission 50 years ago almost, or the first rocks from the moon, and they disproved every previous model of lunar origin that was in the literature. And the giant impact hypothesis basically constrained the total mass of the moon, the fact that the moon has a small iron core. And when computer simulations were run with a giant impact model that satisfied those constraints, the moon was made primarily out of the object that hit us. But because no two objects in the solar system are identical, it did not explain the chemical observations that we had. And this has been a problem the whole time that we've had the giant impact theory. And people have proposed different band-aid solutions of how to try and get around this problem. But we were at the point where the whole idea of the giant impact theory was about to be thrown out because we did not have a reconciliation of the physics and the chemistry. And then you, can you call it a tweak, what you did? So I say we still have a giant impact origin for the moon, but we changed everything else about it except the name. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is a variation. It's higher energy, higher spin. And the reason why those two things are important is that's what makes the synestia. And the moon forming in a synestia is a different environment than the moon forming in the old giant impact models. The moon forming in the old giant impact models was primarily a debris disk derived from the impactor, and the moon didn't have a direct connection with the Earth. Not the same way that there is a genetic relationship between the Earth and the moon within a synestia. Why is it important for us to know all of this? The origin of the Earth is intimately tied to the origin of the moon. In trying to understand what makes the Earth the habitable planet that it is, we want to know how much water it retained, how much atmosphere it retained. And this is the last major energetic event in Earth's formation. And the Earth is a different object right as the moon is forming. And trying to understand how the Earth reconstitutes itself 
and becomes a solid body again with an ocean and an atmosphere is key to understanding the initial conditions that led to where we are today. And so we're trying to understand what happens next in Earth's evolution. How does it become the planet we see today? And the answer? It's hard. (laughs) It's hard to do. (laughs) So this is work in progress. We Understanding how the vaporized planet cools is another exercise in stretching our imagination. For example, in the Synestia, the Earth has no surface. There's no magma ocean to float a boat on. Instead, what we have is continuous vapor up to a high-pressure liquid with no boundary. Temporarily, the Earth is more like a giant planet like Like Jupiter, Jupiter, which also has no liquid surface. And so even that starting point in thinking about the moon is something that we have to now invent techniques to attack and understand that we didn't need before. Sarah Stewart, uh, what advice do you have today, particularly for, for young women who might be looking at science? My advice for young women interested in science is to go for it. If you love it, Don't let anything around you beat out your love of science. And a way to be successful is to accept that everybody needs help and to ask for help. It is possible to live your life the way you want to and have a career in science. And the trick is finding what works for you. Sarah Stewart is an astrophysicist and a professor at the University of California, Davis, and one of this year's MacArthur Fellows. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you very much, Steve. Starting next week, we'll take a look back at a few of our favorites from this year and feature some holiday storytelling. Next week, our show will include a visit with Denny Bro in the frozen north of Maine. So you grew up in? I grew up in Lewiston, Maine. Mainers, when you go home, there's, yeah, the place where you live, and then there is camp. Oh, yeah. Camp is a a very important thing. And we've been uh, going to this one particular camp for 30 years, the family and I. uh, Every year at the end of the summer, when we start to close it up for the season, we do what they call an IC. An IC? An IC. That's an idiot check. (laughs) That's what that means. Yeah. And you kind of go through the camp and make sure you didn't forget your sunglasses or your favorite bathing suit or could be just about anything. You just don't want to leave there. So you have to go back because it's a ways away. And uh, one year we forgot the dog. Yeah, we left the dog there. Had to turn around and go back. I thought you had the dog. I thought you had the dog. Well, nobody had the dog, so. Now, I imagine your camp is someplace near a lake in Maine. Yeah, yeah, it's up in Peru, Maine, a place called Worldly Pond. And, of course, as winter is coming along, 
that sets you up for a great Maine tradition. I've never actually ice fished myself. I've sat in the shacks and shared a few stories and a couple of glasses of this and that. You actually cook meals and just wait for a bite. And certainly around the holidays, a lot of people love to get together and get ice fishing and maybe have a nice fresh salmon along with uh, along with their pot roast, you know? <laughs> so anyway, this next song is called Ice Fishing. And I kind of wrote it to uh, poke fun at Mainers a little bit in their garb and uh, the tradition itself of uh, just all of the fun aspects of, of ice fishing. And uh, I hope you like it. Way up north where the cold wind blows When the lakes freeze over people Chop little holes, drop a line, kick back A little wooden shack And if the ice didn't melt, they'd never go back But just a little wood stove And they're waiting for a bite Gonna fish all day and drink all night I'll be sitting right here when the winter ends Sitting right here when it comes again And we'll go ice fishing Ain't nothing quite the same Ice fishing, it's just a party by another name Well, I got 30 below, three feet of snow But grab your stuff, cause we're still gonna go Ice fishing, ain't nothing quite the same Ice fishing, it's tradition here in Maine Boy, oh, sure is cold today I got green gummy boots and they're lined with felt. Got a bean pocket tool hanging off of my belt. Plenty of beer, got plenty of time. I got a hand-knitted toque, one of a kind. And if you don't like fishing, you can still come along. Cause there's plenty of fun on this frozen pond. We got stories to tell, guitar in hand. Fish swimming around, ready to jump in the pan. Let's go ice fishing. Ain't nothing quite the same. Ice fishing, it's just a party by another name Well, I got 30 below, three feet of snow So grab your stuff, cause we're still gonna go ice fishing Ain't nothing quite the same Ice fishing, it's tradition here in Maine Singer-songwriter Denny Bro joins us next time for some holiday storytelling on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, iTunes, and Google Play. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can see us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the holiday season. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. And from Carl and Judy Fehrenbach of Boston, Massachusetts. PRI Public Radio International.